It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. February 29, 2008, show number 68. Very special two-part interview starting today with Dr. John Medina, developmental molecular biologist. He recently wrote a book called Brain Rules, talking about his research about the brain, about how we think, about how our minds work. thought it would be very interesting. It turned out to be entertaining humorous, and quite informative. Hope you'll enjoy it. I'd like to thank Atlantic Dominion Solutions, new sponsor of the Rails podcast. ADS is a web development innovator that specializes in building user-focused Rails applications and enhancing their performance with Amazon Web Services. Why did I write your, this book? Yeah. Your book, yeah. Brain Rules, uh, 12 okay. Principles for Surviving, Thriving at Work, Home, and School. What's sure. it about? Why yeah. did you write it? Yeah, you bet. The, uh, uh, well, I, uh, um, it actually literally began as a thought experiment. I tried to imagine what would a learning environment, like a classroom or a business, uh, if you were to re-engineer it along the lines of our more modern understanding of how a brain actually processes information, what would that look like? What would you come up with? And I immediately ran into a roadblock, uh, Jeff, because uh, we're only in the beginning stages of understanding how the brain actually works. We don't know squat. Wait, I don't know how you, how you just, for those of you listening at home, he just picked up a glass of water and drank it. We have no idea how he does that. Um, you can show, if you stick your tongue out at a baby, and they're 42 minutes old or 30 minutes old, what does the baby do? Do you know? Same thing. What do you think? Sticks their tongue out back at you. Sticks its tongue back out at you. Now, if you think about that for a nanosecond, that's amazing. It's never seen a tongue before. Not yours. Not its. It is, what has it seen for nine months? It's seen this bloody kind of pinkish gauze with a diaphragm pushing up and down on it, compressing and rarefacting it for nine months. Yet, right out of the box, forgive me, it has, it has the ability to understand that it has a tongue, that you have a tongue, knows that if it orders a series of nerves in a very particular sequence beginning in the back of the brain and then marching forward to the jaw can do the same thing, we have no idea how they do it. We've known since 1979 they can do it. And we have no idea how they do it. We don't know how they poop, how they pee, how they learn to control how they poop and pee. And we don't know about your glass uh, water experiment now that you are, what, 20 or 30 years outside of that uh, uh, age group. If you wanted to design a learning environment that was the exact opposite of what the brain was good at doing, you would design something like a classroom, like you see in the traditional American system. If you were to wanted to design a business that was exactly directly opposed to what that performance envelope was good at doing, you would design a cubicle. And if you wanted to re-engineer the place so that you could take advantage of our more modern understanding of how the brain actually supplies and processes information, you would have to start over. And starting over is what that thing is all about. That's why I wrote it. Now, I was a little shocked in here. You said that, uh, as you just said right now, that the human body and brain was not made to sit at a desk and stare at a computer all day. So uh, you're trying to put me out of a job? Uh, well, I try to get your butt on a treadmill, just like I was before you came in here and interrupted me. <laughs> take a look. If we were to re-engineer, to take your very good comment seriously, actually, the, uh, uh, um, and you could blow it up and start it all over again. One of the first things I would come up with is this. You can show. You can take a bunch of sedentary Japanese fourth graders who are used to playing their video game machines. Or you can take a bunch of sedentary, fat American fourth graders always used to playing with their video machine and exercise the heck out of them. 
And if you exercise them, by heck, I do mean really three times a week with an aerobic exposure of 30 minutes per exercise time, so it's not all that much. The, uh, uh, and do it for four months. You can see anywhere between an 80 to 120% increase in their executive function. Now, executive function is very important in the brain. It's a, it's a type of, uh, of, you use it all the time when you're problem solving in software. If you're writing something, you are making hierarchical dis, uh, decisions about what it is that you're going to uh, write down, how you're going to solve. It's also very important in impulse control. If you get freaked out, your ability to settle back down is a measure of executive function. So if you do that, you can boost that anywhere between 80 to 120%. And then in these experiments that were done with the Japanese, if you then extract the exercise after you've gotten them into shape and then measure their cognitive panels post, you begin to see that they have fluttered back down to where they were before they started the exercise. So you literally can turn on and off specific types of cognitive function like a flashlight. And so, here, if you want to re-engineer it, here's an idea. There should be school uniforms. Do you know what the school uniform should be? They should be gym clothes. And when you get to school, you get on a treadmill, and you exercise for a period of time, and then you can begin the learning process. There's even some information which suggests that at the moment of learning, if you are aerobically exercising, your ability to remember certain things is anywhere between 20 and 25% greater than if you were just seated there in a classroom or in a frickin' cubicle trying to get a piece of information into your head. So if you were to tear it down and start it all over, you know what you'd do? You'd turn all of the schools into this giant gym and everybody would just be exercising the whole time. There. That's for starters. Be good news for uh, sellers of trampolines and treadmills. Well, that's why I got one. In fact, I don't think there should be a desk. I think there should be a treadmill and you mount your laptop on it. Just while you're answering your email, you're working your femoral muscles. Just walking 1.82 miles an hour doing, you know, uh, Richard Rangham, who's a terrific paleo uh, anthropologist, has been able to, uh, has estimated, and it's, uh, there's good reason to believe it, that we were, for millions of years, our ancestors were walking anywhere between 12 and 15 miles per day. And so most of us, this thing grew up and became this nice, beautiful mushroom of a brain under conditions, there's the performance envelope, of near constant motion. So if you began to take brain science seriously, all of a sudden, I could write a book like this. I could say, we still don't know squat about how the brain processes information. But the little that we do know suggests that the systems that we've designed to inculcate information into our head need some vast retooling. And you can start with exercise. I do. <laughs> You also said that every 10 minutes we need some kind of stimulation to keep our brain up and uh, attentive and get us back in the, in the motion. Yeah, well, no, I didn't say that, but there's some data that do. The, uh, uh, and that's not trivial because the, uh, uh, the data needs to be explored. Uh, what you can show, I've seen this, in, I'm a professor in two universities, and so I do a fair amount of teaching. Uh, uh, what you can show is that about, you can ask this question. Let me ask this to you, Jeff, and I know we're on an interview, but let me ask it anyway. The, uh, uh, um, uh, in a typical class here, how long was it, on average, before you started looking at... Now, this is a class you're not thrilled with, but you're not bored to tears with either, okay? Just a normal class. How long was it, typical, into the classroom before you started looking at the clock, when, wondering when this thing was going to be over? I think I was probably too asleep enough to remember what time it was at that point or calculate based on the time the class started. Well, for those of your awake colleagues, they will almost always typically report about 10 minutes. At about 10 minutes, their attention has gone down. And then if you graph it, it's gone way, way down, every once in a while it'll spike up. 
<laughs> because people are looking, well, maybe there's a test, or maybe I need to pay attention. So, But there's this tug of war that's painful, and then all of a sudden, the very end, it kind of goes back up a little bit. And how that's often interpreted is the students are going, yippee, this painful experience is almost over. I can get out of here and go out of dodge. Well, if you have a 50-minute class period and your attention is essentially zeroed out at 10 minutes, that is an 80% failure rate. And if that's a business, that's a failure. So the question is, the brain rule is real simple. People don't pay attention to boring things. That's the bottom line. And you can actually show the more you attend to something, the more you think something is interesting, the more like, if you've heard a song before that you've loved, okay, do you not play it again in your head? You do. Yeah, well, of course you do. And the reason why is you like it. If you are, you are attending to it, but you begin to set up repetition cycles. The more you are interested in something, the more likely you are to re-attend to it. We call it rehearsal. The more you are to rehearse it in your brain. The less you pay attention to something, the less likely you are to rehearse. And we haven't talked about this brain rule, but uh, 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 memory is not fixed at the moment of learning. It's not. It requires active repetition cycles in specific timed events in order to inculcate, to bring it up into your brain so that you're actually processing it. So one of the reasons why if you're interested in something, you learn something better is simply because you're licking it like a lollipop. <laughs> yep, I like that. Yep, I like that. And what I did was, here's the 10-minute rule. I would ask my students, because I teach anywhere from medical students to bioengineering graduate students and occasionally undergraduates here, although I'm here mostly for research purposes. And I ask all my classes, what time do you start looking at the clock? You know what the answer is? <laughs> when they're awake, it's 10 minutes. So what I did, and this is actually a, a model that won an award. I actually think the award selection committee was drunk when they gave it to me because it's not an award I believe in. <laughs> But they gave me a national teaching award as a private consultant researcher. I have a national teaching award, and like, like I said, all I did, Jeff, is that every nine or ten minutes, I stopped the information stream, and I gave them what I like to call an emotionally competent stimulus. Well, we, I should probably unpack that a little bit. Because the question you can ask, if the brain is not paying attention to boring declarative streams and doesn't want, and, and you only got about 10 minute half-life, or 10 minutes, not even half-life, 10 minutes before it's zeroed out, is there a way you could bring it back? Could you, could you get it back? You know, is there something you can do? So the question you can ask is, well, what, pray does the brain pay attention to? And here it is. The brain pays attention to three things. It, you can ask it as an evolutionary question. They're actually on straight Darwinian uh, 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 frameworks, scaffolding. Uh, here it is. It's a series of questions. Can I eat it? Will it eat me? We pay tons of attention if we think something is threatening. Okay? Another one is, can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? <laughs> we pay tons of attention if we think there is reproductive opportunity. And the third one, which I think is interesting, and doesn't have an a priori, so it's funny that it just sticks up, uh, but you can see it, and it's this. Have I seen it before? If you think you've seen it before, we're terrific pattern matchers, it turns out. And if you think you've seen it before, you'll attend to it. You go, oh, oh maybe that was something I should pay. This, is a, you know, this has been repeated in this firmament. Maybe I should look at it. And so what I would do is that every 10 minutes, I would stop and give an emotionally competent stimulus that was on one of those three things. Uh, you, you've got to be careful, especially if you're talking about mating. <laughs> but what you can talk about is humor and pleasure. Uh, because those are also di directly related to the same types of systems we use to, uh, uh, to assess reproductive opportunity. Uh, pleasure. The, uh, we use those. Uh, you can also do a threat. I'll show you one threatening story. I work a lot with psychiatric disorders. 
So most of my consulting life has been spent around looking at issues of mental health. So we can talk about uh, any number of psychiatric disorders or stroke patients. I'll give you an example of one. There's a woman, uh, her name is Ingrid. And uh, uh, that's a research name, that's not her actual name. She has an amazing stroke. She has an amazing stroke in an area of her brain that processes motion. She no longer, Jeff, can see things that move. She can't. You know what she sees when something that is moving? She sees isolated strobe-like snapshots of things that are, say, if it's coming towards her, are processively getting larger and larger and larger, but she cannot connect them. The reason why that can be threatening is because she can't walk out on the street. She doesn't know if a car is coming at her because she can't see it. So it's dangerous. She cannot look at somebody when they're speaking because she cannot connect lip movement. There is no movement, buddy, with the speech itself. So it, it reminds her of, she says in older memory before she had the stroke, that it's like looking at badly uh, dubbed Japanese movies. <laughs> you, you know, without, without the subtitles. Yeah, where they're just having to, having to move. And uh, often, if that's repeated and somebody's actually talking to you but it's subtitled like that, it'll freak you out. I mean, you'll, you'll move away. I have to ask you a question, Jeff. Do I have your attention? Yes, you do. I Listening to you, I noticed myself kind of down and up and, okay, am I listening to the cars? Am I listening to the fan? And, okay, now back to what you're saying. I mean, it's interesting, but I can observe that same thing in myself right now. The more I can give an emotionally competent stimulus, the more likely I am to hold your attention. The less I can give it, the less likely. So what I did, what the model one is that every 10 minutes I stop the information stream and give them a, I call it a hook. But I actually don't mean, I don't believe in entertainment. If you want to entertain, watch a movie. I believe in engagement. If you want to learn something, and my God, we need to learn things, the, uh, uh, you're going to have to take space pieces of information and then give what I call an emotional competence stimulus, I think. Anyway, that's the brain rule. That's the answer to your 10 minutes. Computer programmers spend a lot of time in meetings, even giving presentations, listening to presentations. I'd like to think that everything I say is engaging, interesting, and informative. Should I make the rest of it a little bit more boring? or Most people don't know when they're boring. It's interesting. And most people give way too much information. So I don't think you know. I hope you're, I hope you're engaging. You, you look lovely. You're engaging me very nicely, and your eyebrows are opening up, and you're still a little freaked out that I was putting on my pants when I came in here. The, uh, I mean, there's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of reasons to suspect you might be attending, but whether you're actually attending or not is actually kind of an open question. Uh, most of the time, people pay most attention to the interior parts of their mental life and only come up for air occasionally. So really, Jeff, even though you're being sweet about it, you're only sampling me. You're not actually, you're only, you come up for air and listen to what I'm saying and then you're trying to reframe a question or maybe you're going out there and then you're coming back again. And the only thing I can do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pound on this table so watch this, okay? okay. So I go, that, then all of a sudden I have you. That's a threat. You see? Uh-huh. Then you're back. Yeah. Well, and there's a physical reaction to a little adrenaline. That, oh, yeah, okay, exactly. I need to pay attention over here. Will it eat me? Can I eat it? If you are heterosexual and I'm a female and I'm just putting on my pants, you're going to pay all kinds of attention to this. Because it's now a mating response. And interestingly enough, if you think you've seen something like this before, this is one I don't think people figure out very well, but if you think you've seen it before, you'll attend to it. You'll start going, oh, no, man, I'm going to pattern match off that. I would imagine that if you're writing software code, uh, and, or maybe you're troubleshooting it, and you're starting to look for problem solving, you're matching against maybe an archetype that says, okay, this is what it should look, look like, and then you're going to look at see what it does look like. If you can find a disparity between the two, then you win. Now, the, I want to get back to this book, to the book, but uh, this is sure. way out in left field. At a conference after hours, I sat in on a conversation between people about the 
way the brain works and, and the way computers work, you know, internally, the way computer processors are yes. formed. And it's almost now like uh, we've kind of hit a wall with computer processors. They're not getting faster. So now we add more of them. Even my laptop has two processors. Computers have eight or whatever. And it, in some understandings, maybe the brain works that way as well to where we've got all these things happening at once, subconscious, conscious. If you were going to design a ideal processing machine, would you use the brain as a an example, or do you think there there would be better ways if we we're going to redesign the brain? Well, first, we need to get the computer metaphors out, destroy them, their mythologies. The brain doesn't work anything like a computer. The brain doesn't look, work like anything we know. So to be able to have a metaphor or an analogy which says, okay, we're going to make it like... the What I've seen is that with the progression of the physical, technical, usually in an engineering a metaphor, uh, people re-metaphor the brain. So in the old days when we had wires, the brain was wired up. Then all of a sudden we had... Uh, one microchip, and now it's microchip. Now we've got several, so people are thinking network distributed. Uh, uh, you can take your pick of the metaphors. But I will tell you, none of them work for the brain. The little that we know about the brain, I'll give you the best metaphor I can think of for information processing. You, you won't like it. It's a food processor. <laughs> That's, let, me, let me unpack that a little bit. The, uh, because uh, the reason I'm telling you is it works like nothing that you think. We don't have a metaphor for it. We know too little. And quite frankly, the, uh, uh, the folks who uh, begin limiting their ability to understand how it actually works simply by confining it to a metaphor, because then they have to make predictions based upon their metaphor, as opposed to what the thing actually is. Uh, I'll, I'll give a good example for this food processor, Quip. The, uh, um, when a piece of information comes into your head, uh, the, best in, the best I can tell you is that you, you'll take a piece of visual information, like this lamp over here, and for those of you listening to it at home, we're looking now at a lamp that's a big, fat, vertical rod with a pyramid inverted on the top of it. Okay, it's got colors in it. There's some circles in there. There's a few spheres. Uh, what's happening right now, Jeff, is you're looking at that thing, is that you're physically tearing out the vertical lines from the circles, from the colors, and whirring it around in your brain and busy slamming it, spattering these various parts to widely distributed areas of the brain. The, there's an area that processes circles, and, that's, and the circles are going in there. There's areas that process a vertical line, and there's ones that process a 45-degree line, and they're stored in different places of the brain. The various frequencies of light that are coming into your eyes are all being spattered out and placed in different areas of the brain. And that's what I mean by a food processor. Let me give you a great example. You can look at stroke patients uh, who have this, uh, um, and uh, maybe I can give two examples. Uh, one of them is one of the most extraordinary of the stroke patients that I know of that really represents this. Uh, it, was, it was written about in the journal Nature. Here's what uh, 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 she comes across with. She um, does not have the ability, if she writes down uh, a word, she no longer can put the vowels in them. Okay? If she were to write down the word vowels, she would go V space W space LS. She can't do. She can't put the vowels in. So there's a logic to it, but it's missing. What's extraordinary about that is this. First of all, the logic is there's no such thing as vowels and consonants in nature. We just made that up from a language perspective, right? They're simply compressions and rarefactions and patterns of those compressions and rarefactions coming into our ears. But our brain is such a sophisticated, adaptive machine. There's one of the reasons why one of the computer metaphors fall away. Not only adaptive as a machine, but the ability to take and categorize it based on artificial constraints, such that you can put the vowels in one place and the consonants in another, and you can get a stroke that can clip the ability to... Yes, but if you deep, go deeper into that stroke, you see something more extraordinary. She still has a space. She knows where the vowel is supposed to go. 
which means she separated out the space where a vowel should go from the fact of the vowel itself. That is an osterizer. There is no metaphor for that, sir. None. We don't understand it. Now, one of the things you also talk about is multitasking. (laughs) (laughs) You're a philosophy major. You You also, I have to think of that and think of the fact that you said our brains are not good at multitasking. You said this heretical statement that we should turn the internet off in order to get work done, and yet my heart's beating and... I'm waving my hand and I'm talking and things yes. are happening all at once. Yeah. Why Why aren't we good at multitasking? Oh, this is then? such a contradiction. You should not buy my book because it's filled with this giant tectonic fault through it. How can I reconcile such a thing? <laughs> Offended because I'm also going to tell you to turn off your cell phone when you're driving. <laughs> and for almost exactly the same reason. All right, let's go through it. <laughs> <laughs> at one level, you multitask just fine. You're looking at me and drinking a glass of water again and holding this thing, and you're doing all three things all at once. So, yep, you can multitask just fine. If you're a piano player, the left hand isn't necessarily doing what the right hand is doing, and both of them are happening simultaneously, and it sounds like multitasking to me. The uh, You can walk and chew gum at the same time at one level. Yep, brain looks like it can multitask, and at one level it can. But at the level of the attentional spotlight... The workspace of the brain where most things actually get done. We are not a multitasker. We are a sequential processor. And a real good example of that is I will ask you to start reading from my book and then I'm going to start spitting at you. I promise I won't do it. Kind of thing. You'll start paying attention to the spit, but you will not be able to uh, pay attention to my spit and read that book at the same time. You can't do it. You'll attend to one or you'll attend to the other or you'll flip back and forth between the two. But you cannot do the same thing together. And that's true with almost anything that you try. Uh, the best way I can think of it, for those people who feel like they can multitask, you can grow up in environments where you have 17 windows open on the computer at the same time and you've got your cell phone on. And your, uh, What you can show is that actually people aren't multitasking. They're doing single, but they often have really terrific what we call working memories. So they can virtually hold things in a buffer for a period of time. But even within the buffer, they're, all, they're always attending to single. Um, there's a good metaphor for this. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> I date myself. I have no uh, 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 hope that you will understand who Ed Sullivan was. Do you know oh, who yeah, Ed Sullivan TV, is? Do you know? TV oh, you personality? Didn't he? Uh, was he on Johnny Carson or no? Is that completely? They had his own show. He, show. He, 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 if you knew him at all, it's because he brought the Beatles over and showed it first in 1964. It's the Ed Sullivan show. It's the same show where the Doors are on and or the Rolling Stones are on. And remember they, uh, the gyra- Elvis's gyrations. That's that's one show. It's one whole Ed Sullivan show. Um, and you get these on YouTube, they're just hysterical to look at. You know, the, uh, the, the Rolling Stones had to change a lyric, let's spend some time together, as opposed to let's spend the night together, because they were too racy. Yeah, that's the Ed Sullivan show. He used to have these, I would call them, uh, the equivalent would be stupid human tricks, <laughs> whereby you'd get these strange circus acts. And he would bring them on, and they would do their act. And one of the most interesting, I'll bet you've seen these, there would be a bunch of vertical dowel rods, uh, maybe a meter, maybe two meters high, and you put a dish on them and you spin it, okay, so that you, uh, the, uh, uh, the rotation of the dish will hold it, uh, hold the center of gravity, and he's doing all these, and the whole idea is the more dishes he puts on, you know, you're looking at him, because he's having to spin these rods, they're not, they're not motorized, so he's going to have to provide the torque each time, yeah, uh, uh, and when one will wobble, he'll go. That's a great metaphor for the attentional spotlight. You can hold many different dishes, but you have to attend to each a dowel rod. He doesn't have ten arms. If, you, if he had ten arms, he could do them simultaneously. 
that, and if the brain could truly multitask, then you could do those simultaneously. But if you have a good working memory, you might be able to, in a volatile buffer, hold them for periods of time and move them, but you can only attend to one at a time. And where that has tragic consequences, it has tragic consequences for learning. You can actually show that if you are multitasking as opposed to, they're called non-interrupted versus interrupted models, and interrupted would be every two or three minutes you're doing something else. It takes you twice as long to do a particular task, and you have 50% more errors. Then if you settle it down, you don't multitask, do one thing. Even if you bracket it with multitasking things on either side, but you say I have 20 minutes of solid concentration, uh, you, are, you, are less, you, are, you're, you can get it through twice as fast, is another way of saying it, with half the number of errors. Where it gets deadly is with cell phones. And this is whenever I see a cell phone person driving now, and I have my children, I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, uh, you can actually show that they have mean reaction times, and the ability to attend a stimulus the same, at the same rate as a person who is drunk between the uh, uh, um, statistics of 0.08 to 0.12. And one of the reasons why is that you can actually show, and there's millions of ways to show this, and this has been replicated so often, in brain rules, I have all of these references, but because we wanted to keep it friendly, same reason why we didn't put diagrams in and slammed it on a website, and go get them. I don't think you should believe me, but you may want to believe these data. The, uh, 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 you can actually show that uh, uh, they are making poorer judgments in terms of their ability to break. They wobble a lot. And as they move between the phone and the driving themselves, and it's special to the phone, we'll talk about music in a second, the, uh, 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 it is specific to the phone, that they are in much greater uh, chance. In fact, they're nine times more likely at the moment of switch to get into an accident than if they just put the phone down and drive. So when I have my sons in the back of the car, Jeff, and I love those kids. I don't want them uh, uh, breaking their backs on the back of some 20-year-old who's driving text messaging while, while, uh, uh, while I'm in the back with them. Uh, I back way, way off, and I think, okay, I'm looking at a drunk driver right now. Okay. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit, because people listen to music, and they most certainly do, don't they? Right. They eat sandwiches while yeah. they're driving. I mean, there's lots of that. Is the same problem occurring? Interestingly enough, the independent variable is, if you are talking to somebody on the phone, uh, uh, um, invariably it's a little bit like reading a book you'll hear them and if they get pissed off at you all of a sudden you are beginning to virtualize them <laughs> uh, for those of you listening at home he just opened the book while he's trying to listen to me and he did, and he did a great job <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, it, it turns out that it is the virtualizing itself that is the distraction that's where you begin moving. So unlike music, you don't necessarily virtualize the musicians that are out there when you're listening. But when you're talking with somebody for real who can actually interact with you, you end up doing what you do to books. And that is you visualize what you're seeing. And that's what you flick between. And that's the difference between music and not. There is one study. It needs to be replicated, but we can talk about it here. That even with music, uh, you, you can watch a flicker occur. When you listen to a four-minute uh, uh, piece of music, you usually don't like all four minutes. Maybe you just like the hook, or maybe right. you think the hook sucks, but you love the bridge, or you can take your, or maybe you like a particular instrumentation. Uh, one study has shown that when you are at the spot that you actually really like, you stop paying attention to the road also and start paying attention to that, and then you come back to it. But because the, uh, it's not like you have a 100% on the, which is what you're doing on the phone, uh, the distractions are, are more minimalized. No, when you're, from now on, when you're driving, dude, if you want to save your life, get off the phone. I was surprised to learn that only this year did it become illegal to send a text message while driving in Washington State. 30, 30 days ago, or 60 days ago now. Yeah. 
Pretty soon in July, it's going to be that you can't be, you have to use a, a, a handless phone. But you know, it doesn't matter. The data are exactly the same whether you've got your hands on it or not. It's the, vi the independent variable here is the virtualization. Right, yeah. 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 So it doesn't really matter. So our law sucks that way. It's taking up only about half of what, they're going to put everybody on speaker phones and it's going to be the same thing. It's not going to make any difference. So that's multitasking business is not to be trifled with. The little that we do know about the brain, you know, so it's just the same thing when I'm thinking about classrooms. You know, we do all kinds of stuff out here, some of which are very foolish, that are not particularly brain-friendly at all. The Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Atlantic Dominion Solutions, now providing multiple application servicing options with ADS Mantis, 24-7 monitoring and management of EC2 deployments, as well as a fully managed virtual hosting solution for Rails applications. Thanks also to Rails Machine for providing hosting and bandwidth for the show.